Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And now, and now, prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You bet you have been. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow, now is there? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast with host Eddie Trunk. Hey folks, Eddie Trunk here. Welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New every Thursday, anywhere you get your podcast. Thank you for checking it out and uh, hope everybody had a great 4th of July weekend. And I am here with another great interview to bring to you. Before I do though, I want to remind you, I've got a bunch of appearances. I'm back out there on the road. Be sure to join me July 11th, which is this coming Sunday. If you're in the area of Northern California, I'll be in Corning at the Rolling Hills Casino with Skid Row, Warrant, Winger, and Autograph. Be sure to keep an eye on the homepage of eddytrunk.com for all of my appearances. July 31st, I'll be in Fort Wayne, Indiana with Warrant at the Sweetwater Pavilion. Be sure to follow on social media at Eddie Trunk, especially Twitter, where I keep you updated with everything going on. As I tell you every week, the interviews you hear on this podcast originated and aired live initially on my daily radio show on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106, that show called Trunk Nation, here at live daily in the U.S. or Canada, 2 to 4 Eastern, nightly re-airs 10 to midnight Eastern, anytime you want, full shows, audio, video, more on the Sirius XM app. This week, I am bringing you an interview, and people love when I do these guests on the show. Behind-the-scenes people, in this case, a producer, a legendary producer by the name of Jack Douglas. Jack Douglas did work with Cheap Trick, John Lennon, all the classic Aerosmith albums, Zebra, so much more. In the interview you're about to hear, which got tremendous response, Jack tells his story early in life, and in all honesty, I had to rush a little bit when we got to some of the Aerosmith records because he was running out of time that he had for me. But he still gave me a good amount of time, and we'll do a part two with him somewhere down the road. But people love this interview, and I personally love getting the stories from the folks behind the scenes that made the records that we love so much. And Jack Douglas is certainly one of the biggest. And I think you're going to really love this interview. Got a lot of great response when it aired live on my show on Sirius XM. So without further ado, let's get to it. Jack Douglas, the legendary producer That's what we have for you this week on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Enjoy. 
All right, it's Eddie Trunk, and this is Trunk Nation on Sirius XM Volume, and it is a great, great honor to uh, welcome this guy to the show. It's somebody that I've been wanting to talk to and have an extended conversation about his amazing career for a really long time. We welcome now the great producer, Jack Douglas. Jack, thank you so much for doing this. How are you? I'm good. I'm a little bit embarrassed by the intro. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you look at the resume, Jack, and you run down the resume and you see everything from John Lennon to Aerosmith, you certainly deserve an intro like that. Um, You know, before we get into, and, you know, as I told you off the air, my audience is more on the the hard rock side of things, so they are absolutely going to be interested in that end of your career. But the career is so diverse and so many amazing things you've done. But in all the great producers that I've had on this show, I like to obviously start at the beginning and get the story of how you became a producer. Most of the producers I talked to started out wanting to be musicians and being musicians themselves and then transitioning from there. How did it all start for you? Uh, it started, uh, you know, when I was, I mean, there used to be things called hoot nannies, and, and that was like the folk scene in the early 60s. So while I was, Still in high school, um, you know, I was playing guitar and writing folk songs. And uh, when I was 15 or so, I was banging around the village uh, here in New York, playing, you know, if I could play a coffee shop. Um, you know, I had an old Martin, and uh, I, I think it was from the 30s, this thing. It was really nice, though. And I, somewhere around, I guess, my 15th. 15th year or so maybe I was 16 I think I was 15 I played at a young Democrats club um, near NYU and and if you ask me why uh, I was playing at a young Democrats club you know you play for the girls and your you know your chances with a at a young Republicans club was not as good uh, <laughs> as a young Democrats club where the girls were more liberal and you know had a shot of making a friend but anyway, some guy approached me and he said, hey, uh, you write your own songs? So I said, yeah, I bought a bunch of those tunes I wrote. And he said, how'd you like a job uh, for the summer? And um, like a summer job playing music? He said, yeah, you'll be playing music. So I said, sure. You know, what's it pay? He said, nothing. It doesn't pay anything, but you'll get to travel and you'll get fed and you'll get housed. So I said, that sounds like a good deal. And uh, and it was uh, writing um, songs for Robert Kennedy's senatorial campaign and playing rallies. And and I did that. That was, you know, like, that was really uh, like a cool thing to do. In fact, uh, they talked me into writing some music for uh, Lyndon Johnson that year, 64. Johnson was uh, running for... A president and so I wrote a, a song for him and ended up uh, performing it at a rally in Madison Square Garden in fact I opened for the Shirelles and so um, I did that gig and then um, some people in the in the uh, Kennedy office helped me get a you know get a deal with uh, Columbia Records or you know, it was CBS then only uh, by then, uh, I had been completely influenced by the Beatles and, and that scene. And so I traded uh, the Martin for a 
1955 black Les Paul custom that was the guy who sold it to me in this little music store in uh, in Mawa, New Jersey, told me that it had been Les Paul's. Les Paul lived in Mawa. Mm-hmm. So I bought this, uh, I traded this and $175 for this Les Paul. And um, and started a band and uh, immediately got a, a deal and um, started, you know, being kind of professional. So I played in bands for a long, long time from, from then, toured all over the country with different bands, played bass for a while with Chuck Berry on the road. Yeah, you know, I, I, I played with the Angels, my boyfriend, I was in that band. I really banged around. Sometimes uh, signed to major labels, you know, with my own band, and sometimes just a, as a backup guy or uh, as a studio guy, uh, mostly on bass in the studio. And um, I bounced around doing that for a while. I convinced in 65, I convinced a guy who played in a band with me uh, named Ed Leonetti. I convinced him that we should go to Liverpool if we really wanted to, uh, if we wanted to really make the scene that we should absorb what's going on there, like play in the clubs there and do the whole thing. So we, the cheapest way to get there was by tramp steamer, the $112 from New York to, uh, to Liverpool. And now when you book on a tramp steamer, you're probably going to be the only passengers you're just with the crew basically and you also they can't give you an exact time limit for when they're going to pull into liverpool because they uh a trap steamer will pull in anywhere it can pick something up and and or dump something so it took quite a while and you know we crossed the north atlantic in november which is not comfortable at all it's really high seas and we were in hamburg and we were in Norway, we were all over the freaking place. Before we went down the Irish Sea, and on my little radio, I heard uh, pirate radio for the first time, Radio Caroline, and there was another one too. I can't remember the name of the other one, but there were two pirate radio stations, and I started hearing all this incredible music, you know, mostly British, lots of American. Because, you know, they didn't have rock radio anymore. They, they had Radio Luxembourg that they listened to. It had a rock station. Or they listened to, well, BBC had an hour of rock music every day. That was it. So the pirate radio stations were really cool. They were on boats in the Irish Sea. Anyway, are you asleep yet? No, no. I, I can't. I find this oh, fascinating okay. that you'd be, I'm listening. Oh. I, I envision you in, okay. envisioning you on this ship with a crew going yeah, through, yeah. you know, hearing this music and getting close to Liverpool. I mean, it sounds like a, a magical thing for somebody at that time, as uh, young as uh, you were. Yeah, it was absolutely heaven. And I mean, the crew, they were like pirates. It was really crazy. <laughs> And we were just me and me and A were the only passengers. Anyway, so we pull into port and we're two naive kids. We got little, our little champ amps, knapsacks with our clothes in them and our guitars. He had a, he had a Mose right and, and, uh, and I had my Les Paul. And so immigration came on board and they, and they said, so what are you two doing here? And we said, well, we've come to play. And they just looked at us like play is in 
play means work. So do you have a work permit? No. Do you have a, re- a visa of any kind? No. Do you have a return trip ticket? No. <laughs> okay. So when this ship, you, you banned from landing. And when this ship leaves in five days, you're going to be leaving with it. Thank you. Goodbye. Uh, you know, at which point my friend Eddie said, you know, like, just like Laurel and Hardy and the fineness you've got me into. You know, this, it was really kind of messed up. I mean, here we were in Liverpool after, you know, a really terrible trip and we couldn't get off the boat. So I said to him, I'll figure some way out of this. And so that same evening, I decided I was going to escape from the ship and figure some way of getting my friend out as well and our guitars. So, you know, the one preparation we did have was that we had some British pounds sterling a little bit. So I borrowed a crew member's coat and hat, and I thought, well, this would be a good disguise because I pulled the collar up and the hat down. And, um, and I'd walk down the plank, down the gangway, and as I was walking down, I expect, and I'm looking both ways for like these cops are going to arrest me, and I'm going to end up in injury. Anyway, I looked, and there was a, a there were like two other merchant marines, seamen coming from another ship, and they were walking down the dock, and they just walked straight out through a through a gate and right out into the street. And I realized, you know, these guys are just going to go get drunk, and then go back on their ship and sleep it off. And, you know, there's like, there's no issue. I could walk right off this thing. So I did. I walked right through the gate and, and no one stopped me. And I took a, I got on a bus that said uh, uh, Central Liverpool and, and went downtown. And the first place I went was uh, a record store. Uh, that was the first thing I wanted to see. There was a, you know, I wanted to buy this record that I heard on a pirate radio called to whom it concerns, going crazy over, but I, I can't remember the artist's name. And uh, as a single, so I went into, I was going to go in and buy that. And when I got in, uh, it turns out that the Beatles had just, you know, I was just a, such a Beatles fan. The whole reason I was there. And the Beatles had just released Rubber Soul. I mean, it just come out that, that week. And so uh, they had these listening booths. So I bought you know, which is the English version of Rubber Soul, which begins with uh, Drive My Car, which is on the American album. And it was on polyphone, but they were soft cover. Just magical to me. And I went into a listening booth. They had these listening booths. When there was a mono record, one speaker, and I put it on the turntable, and like three other people followed me in so they could hear it also. And and I was like knocked out because it seemed like, wow, this is like revolutionary. It's not like any other Beatle records. This is really cool. And so I took my record and walked out onto the street and decided that by hook or by crook, I got to figure out a way to stay in Liverpool. And so across the street from the record store, there was a newspaper office, the Liverpool Echo. Then and still now the, the biggest newspaper in Liverpool. And so I walked into those offices and I told the receptionist that I was an American musician being held hostage on a ship in the harbor. <laughs> and she looked at me really, she looked at me really funny, like when well, you're standing in front of me. And I said, and I escaped. And, and so she said, well, I'll wait here. She said, the one thing I can tell is that you are an American. That's the only 
you know, thing that's obvious at this point. And so um, an editor came out and I told him my story about, you know, coming here and being an American musician and all these English musicians were in America and they were doing fine. But, you know, I come over with my buddy and like they won't even let me in, blah, blah, blah. So he said, this is an interesting story. And so he said, I'll drive you back to the harbor. If I watch you go back on the ship, then tomorrow newspapers from all over England will be all over this story. And by the way, are you hungry? And I said, yes. And he said, have you had English fish and chips? I said, never. And so we stopped and we got, you know, newspaper wrapped fish and chips. It was like the best thing I've ever had in my life. And then uh, he drove me down to the harbor and watched me go through the gate and back up the gangplank. And I waved to him and that was it. And so I, I walked back on. My friend Eddie was like really surprised to see me, you know. He said, I thought you were gone. I said, no, no, I told you, I think we're going to get I think I have a plan. This is going to work. And um, and so, uh, you know, I had my Rubber Soul album and we borrowed a, a little, you know, phonograph, little, you know, tiny little player from somebody on the ship had one. And we listened to that album all night. And, you know, he said, you know, there, nobody's coming for us. I got convinced that he was telling me the truth. But the next morning, there was a knock on the door. It was one of the crew guys. He said, hey, there's a bunch of newspaper people here. I want to talk to you. And we went, you know, we went out. We did all these interviews. And uh, it, you know, took pictures of us. One of the coolest pictures, I still have the front page of that newspaper. It's he and I on the, on the bow of the ship. Me with my Les Paul. Him with his, you know, just on the front page of the Liverpool Echo. And it's just a really cool picture on the front page. America's banned from landing. And also, they had a connection to, uh, oh, in the London Mirror. I mean, there were all, all these newspapers with Manchester. They were all covering this story about these poor guys. And so the next day, they had a connection to a TV station. They, they got these, they hired these girls to march up and down in, in front of the ship outside the gate. Uh, signs that said "Free the Yanks." Oh was my a, gosh. It was, They were they were paid for. You know, they were paid to do this. And every time we would go to the bow of the ship and wave them, they would scream like we were the Beatles or something. <laughs> ah. And and that was you know, and they and they put it on TV. And so and and there was all this press. And then immigration came on board and they said to us, you know, we don't know how you did this. We have no idea, but like we are getting, people are calling us and saying, how could you do this to these two young men? So we're going to give you a 60-day student visa. You can't bring the guitars in. And so you have to figure out a way to ship them back. He said, some editor at the newspaper has guaranteed your return trip. He never did, but he told them he would anyway. But so they let us go and... We immediately got into a band because we were kind of like celebrities. And so we hung out at the, the original Cavern Club. Can you imagine? I mean, it's just like for a kid, this is like a dream come true. Banging around Liverpool, playing with some shitty band. Then one day, one night, about two, three weeks later, you know, we had a little flat that they got for us. We were at a, at a like a, a kind of a tea shop. 
you know, scones and tea. It's late midnight after a gig. And uh, we're trying to pick up a couple of girls, you know, with being celebrities and all. You know, <laughs> and uh, this guy comes up, comes up to us and he says, hey, aren't you the two Yanks? And we said, yeah, that's us. And he said, listen, he said, my friend is like a big fan of you. He just thinks it's the coolest. And he's just parked around the corner. And I wonder if you'd like sign an autograph for him. We said sure, and we walked around the corner, and it was immigration. Oh and, wow! Uh, they said, "They said, are you making fools of us?" Huh? They handcuffed us right on the spot, and we were put on a train that night in shackles from Liverpool to London. In the morning, when the train got there, in shackles and chains, we took a train, the next train from London to Southampton, and they threw us on the first. Uh, ship that morning back to New York happened to be the SS United States, which was the flagship of the American flagship and also the fastest ship afloat at the time. And we went back to, and we went back to New York, but I'd been sending back press clippings. And so when we arrived, we were kind of like, wow, these are the guys who used to bend to Liverpool, you know. And, and we got in like really good bands right then and there. Um, he went into the Soul Survivors. They had a big hit, Expressway, Expressway to my heart, Expressway to your heart. Do you remember that? This is your friend Eddie, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I remember yeah, when you the- when you said Eddie, I remember he also became a producer as well because if I'm not mistaken, didn't he yeah, produce for- the band Angel? Yeah, for my company, for Waterfront. Yeah. Right. Okay, so I do. I know his yeah. name as a producer for sure. Yeah, he. You know what I wanted to do is like I have a real loyalty to him for putting up with me, and he was really talented, talented songwriter and arranger. And I thought, you know, this guy. I am. We're still good friends. But anyway, um, and I went into a band. Called, oh no, I went into the Angels, and then. Went down to Miami to the 79th Street Causeway. There was a club called The Barn. And uh, we were the headline, the Angels. Wayne Cochran and the CC Riders were the house band. And so what happens is I can't handle the Angels anymore. I decide to quit. There's a brief opening in the CC Riders because the bass player, I don't know what happened to him. So I, I think I played for a day or two with that gig. And this English band called the Liverpool set. Only one of them was really from England. One, another one was from Scotland. One was from Latvia. And I don't know, you know, and a couple of them were from Canada. But anyway, they came in. They were having hits around, you know, regional hits. And their bass player had been deported back to Canada. And they were looking for a bass player. And so it turns out that I, I ended up in that band and... Jaco Pistorius came in and blew everybody's mind. He ended up in the CC Riders. And so I took off with this band, the Liverpool set, and we, we were signed to Columbia. We did a bunch of recordings for Columbia, had regional hits all over the place. And, uh, I, you know, it turns out we were Paul Schaefer's favorite band hmm. because he, he, he lived in, uh, in way up on the lake head of Lake Superior. No bands went there, but we did. We would go anywhere. We had this manager, uh, Moxie Whitney was his name. He was just 
you know, like we would do a one nighter, you know, in Sudbury, Ontario. And then, you know, like the, the night after that, we would be in Milwaukee, you know, if there was a gig. So, uh, you know, we bounced all over the U.S. and Canada with, with this band and recorded as well. So after that band, I came back uh, to New York, played briefly in a band called the Swamp Seeds. And we had a, and we were on Epic. We had a hit. And when that ran its course, I ran into Eddie, who had just left the Soul Survivors. He said, 69. And he said to me, hey, have you heard this band Led Zeppelin? The album had just come out. And I said, yeah, it's really cool. Can you believe it? they're just like taking blues and making it and like kind of making it really heavy and it's like really cool. He said, yeah, we should form a band like that here in New York, but we'll put a Hammond organ in with it so they know it's a New York band. You know, if you were a New York band, you had to have a Hammond. And so, so we formed this band. It was called Privilege, named after the movie Privilege, which we both like. And we set up in a club across the street from the Palisades Amusement Park. Uh, we made a deal with the owner that he would let us rehearse like every day in the afternoon if we gave him Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights in his club. So that was a good deal. I mean, he paid us a little bit for those nights, but not much, but we got to rehearse for free. And we started putting together our, our songs, all originals, but you know, kind of heavy. And the Isley brothers, who lived not far from there, they lived in Teaneck, New Jersey. And so uh, the Isley brothers came into the club one night, and uh, they had just had that huge hit, "It's Your Thing." I think that was the name of it. Yeah, "It's Your Thing." Yep. And they had they had a deal. They had their own label now called Teaneck Records, and they had a deal uh, with Buddha. And so they they liked us, and right on the spot they offered us a deal. You know, we were, we were thinking it was going to take a while, you know, and we we're going to have to bang around a little bit before we can get a, a deal. But we was like, yeah, sure. He said, yeah, we're starting this label. It's T-Neck Records. And we want it to be not just an R&B label. We want it to be, you know, rock and pop and, and R&B and, you know, really cover the whole, and you'll be our rock band. So we we're like, cool. Great. So we signed with them and they were going to be our producers. Isley Brothers producing us. And so they took us into, uh, they took us into A&R Studios, which was at the time, like the best studio in town. So we're all in a bit. And uh, that was in 69. Yeah, we went in there and uh, recorded a record. You know, like we cut our tracks in like, well, maybe 10 days. We cut all the tracks. Uh, they were really heavy and open and ambient and kind of cool. And they said, okay, come back in a week and, and you can hear it mixed. And, you know, you guys don't have to hang out for the mix. So uh, we left and, you know, a week went by and, you know, 10 days went by. More time than we thought, you know, we were like wondering what was going on. And so we went back in for a listen and, and they had kind of like, um, they kind of mixed it in kind of an R&B way instead of like real open, like what we were looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we didn't like it. And so I said something to, to Kelly Isley about, you know, not digging the, the mix. 
and it was eight track, by the way, which was we thought you know more tracks than you could ever use. But we said you know, and so he got really mad at me, and they stormed out, and and, uh, and he and Rudolph Isley who was the oldest. Isley came back and he says, "You don't like it? You mix it." <laughs> and so um, he gave me two days to to mix it, and so. The engineer's name was Tony May, this really cool black cat. He was like six foot six, just the coolest guy. And, you know, the first thing I said to him after I left was, you know, the rough mixes sound better. Why don't we just use those? And he said, well, no, those are all seven and a half and they're quarter tracks. And, you know, that's not what you want. We can, you know, we could probably mix this. So the next day I went in and I just like, I just drove him crazy. You know, not knowing anything about being on that side of the glass, you know, I was like just a terror, you know, wanting him to boost all these frequencies on the bass, you know, because it was my bass and make the cymbals real splashy. I drove him nuts and we didn't get much done that day. And he told me that the only way he would mix it is if I was bound and gagged in the chair. (laughs) And so... uh, I said, you know, I'll do that kind of metaphorically, symbolically, but I, you know, I promise you won't say a thing. And I, I watched this guy mix it. And, you know, I watched what he was doing with compressors and equalizers and how he would mix just the verses on a song and then put all the verses on, a, on, on the tape machine and then go back and do the choruses and like, change the amount of echo on the choruses and maybe the compression and the EQ, you know, and then edit the, the choruses and the verses together. So it sounded like like impossible, like you couldn't do that in a mix. You know, there was no automation, you know, so he, he would do all this stuff and, and then put it all together. And I thought, man, oh, this is like really cool. And I think the mixes, the album is still available. And there's a story behind that too, but, um, you know, I thought this is really, really cool. And so when it was all done, I asked him for a job. I said, you know what? I want to, I want to do this, you know? And he said, I wouldn't let you anywhere near our studio. <laughs> but if you want to go destroy another studio, they're uh, rebuilding one down just a few blocks down the street, which was record plan. So that album privilege, it came out and then was reissued because, I quit the band, obviously, because I'll, I'll tell you why. But it was reissued because Jimi Hendrix had once played with the Isaac Brothers. And so some years later, they did a press release that said, this is like after I had, you know, was known as a producer. <laughs> and they put out a thing that said, what do you get if you put the Isaac Brothers, Jimi Hendrix, and Jack Douglas together? Privilege. And, and then the, <laughs> the record became available again. <laughs> Mm. which was really cracked me up. But, but anyway, I went down to record plant and they, they, I walked in and there was a guy in coverall sitting where the receptionist would be because they were working on these rooms uh, on the ground floor. And, uh, and I said, I'm looking for a job. And the guy said, we need a janitor. I said, I'm your guy. And they hired me as a janitor at the record plant. And, um, and I told the band that uh, I would, you know, if they needed me to do promotion, the Isaac Brothers were already, at that point, they were pissed at us. 
And so there was no, they weren't backing any tours or promotions. So it was no big loss that uh, I left. But uh, that's how I got from being from the hoot nanny to the record company. What an amazing story. It's it's <laughs> unbelievable uh, story, actually. And uh, Jack, so the very first record you, I imagine you started out engineering before you graduated to actually having a producer credit. What was well, the, what, what, tell me I, about how that evolution happened. Yeah, so, okay, so I, I started as the janitor there at Record Plant, and um, because it was in New York City, you know, they were immediately told they had to have a union janitor, and so I got, I became a, <laughs> I became a, a general worker. And, and so that, this is a, again, now this is a summer of 69. So my first gig as, as a, um, the general worker is to what the, they're recording uh, remotely up in Woodstock, the, the Woodstock festival. And so my job is to, um, meet the truck when it comes in with all these tapes and bring them to studios in the building where like studio a is ready to go and, and the B is still in being built and C upstairs is going. So anyway, my job is to like bring the tapes to the rooms where the artists are fixing up any problems. And Eddie Kramer is in a with Jimi Hendrix. Um, and, and I go in there and, um, Jimmy offers me a joint and I'm like, man, I am so in the right place. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> this is so cool. Did you, you take know? it? And, um, <laughs> Did you take no, it? No, I didn't because I, I would have been screwed up all day. <laughs> so I, you know, I, uh, I graduated from general worker to, um, to, uh, tape library uh, to the dubbing room where I learned to you know edit uh, uh, jingles from from uh, sixty second spots to thirty second spots, uh, make copies for people, and then uh, assistant engineer. And I was assisting on uh, on uh, American Pie, um, and I was assisting on Mountain albums, and I was assisting on. Uh, on the James gang. Um, uh, I mean, I, you know, I was like, now I'm taking notes like on what works and watching producers, what works, what doesn't, you know, I'm really, I'm really learning. Uh, I'm assisting Jay Messina. He's the jingle King. We're doing Ford commercials, airline commercials. That's like, those start at nine in the morning, sometimes 40 piece orchestra rhythm section, background singers, lead singer, and announcer, all done, leave with the mix in four hours. Hmm. So, you know, I'm learning that you, you, you know, it may take longer to set up the chairs than to do the session. Watching Jay, you know, he was unbelievable. They, they stole them from A&R, in fact, because they wanted a little bit of jingle business in the morning, you know, to fill it. This was basically a rock studio, so it was empty in the morning. So I, um, uh, assisting on jazz dates and then, um, you know, really getting my chops together. And then they put me on the, they made me the guy doing people's four track demos. Uh, so one day, uh, this, uh, um, 
this artist comes in that he's like unknown, but he's been, I re- I recognized him because he played in the hassles and I used to see that band. I used to play the same clubs in Long Island sometimes. So it was Billy Joel and Artie Rip brought in Billy Joel to record demos. Uh, and it was just a Billy on piano. He's recording demos to try to get his deal for Columbia. And I'm recording these demos for track. And this would have been, and and this, and and Jack, this would have been because before Billy Joel operated under his own name, he actually was in a hard rock band, I think called Attila. So this was after that, I would imagine. Oh yes. It's well after Attila because, uh, between it, because the hassles were in the sixties. Then he went and put the horns on. Right. Um, you know, with that Attila thing. And then this was his chance to go solo. But I remembered him very well from the hassles. Uh, you didn't remember me. But, you know, I mentioned that I'd seen him at, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the club out in the island that he played quite often with the hassles. And I think at the Rolling Stone as well, uh, opening for the Vagrants. But anyway, um, so Artie Rip. Uh, brings him in. Artie was a client of, of mine for demos all the time because, you know, he didn't have to pay much for him. And uh, do you know who Artie Rip is? No, I don't. Probably not. No. Okay. All right. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, Artie, Rip owns, Artie Rip owns 5% of Billy Joel's publishing. Okay. And, you know, and became, became a really wealthy man. I think that was the price that Billy paid for Artie, I mean, for, for Artie doing the demo, producing the demos. But anyway, um, Patty LaBelle, I did, um, I did Patty's demos, LaBelle's demos. And I became really good friends with Patty, who was a sweetheart. And, um, she was on track records. Uh, the who were also on track records in the U S. And so um, it turns out now my um, my engineering chops because I'm going in at midnight, and they let me go in at midnight. That was like this is how you learn. They let you bring in any band you want, you know, some street band, and practice your chops, multi track, on on these bands. So I would be in there every night. I could recording bands even if i had a a 6 a.m call for uh, for a jingle date i would you know i would sleep there in the studio so um i get a chance to because patty liked me and she put in the good word now i'm assisting on uh the who who have come in to do who's next oh wow and uh which was i guess at that point was the lighthouse album uh, and the engineer, they, they, they didn't know anything about uh, who, who was the engineer they wanted. The chief engineer at that time was a guy named Jack Adams. And Jack Adams was uh, the R&B king of record play. Uh, he was not into rock. He hated rock completely. Um, and so... They put me on, it turns out, you know, I had done so many rock dates that I knew, and Jack would just say to me, set it up like, you you know, you would set up a, a, a mountain date or a James Gang date or whatever. 
So uh, the who came in early. I set up all their gear. I set up the mics that I would use on anybody that was heavy duty. Uh, a lot of mics on on, on, uh, on uh, Keith's drums, and, and uh, they came in and they started jamming. This gave me a Jack wasn't there yet. This gave me a chance to uh, you go into the control room and 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 balance it out, and get the EQ right, get a little compression going, and get it all set for Jack when he came in and uh, and I recorded the uh, whatever they were jamming, and uh, and so uh, that's my dog. That's all right. Yeah. And so uh, Jack comes in that day, and um, we start recording. And, and, uh, and the band's out there, and and Jack says to me, "Well, listen, to, listen, it's terrible. The drummer's terrible. <laughs> they don't even have any rhythm. They're not even. He's like saying all this stuff about the Who. Like he didn't like them. Yeah, he didn't like them at all. I says the Who, and he's like, Who? Who? <laughs> yeah, the Who. They just." just their last album was Tommy. Tommy who? Sorry, he's making jokes. He's not, not digging it at all. <laughs> all right, continuing with Jack Douglas now. So we're into the early years of you learning the, the craft of engineering and segueing into a producer. So tell us where it goes from here. So so we, we're, uh, we're recording some stuff that day with The Who, and when the band comes in, now, Kid Lambert was the producer. He was a maniac. And... Um, so the band comes in and, you know, we're monitoring at a pretty low level. Jack doesn't like to listen loud. Jack Adams. And so uh, Pete Townsend comes over and says, where's the master volume? I point to it. And he just cranks it all the way up. And I could see, you know, I could see Jack's face. He was like, oh, no, no. So the next day he comes in. Calls me over and he says, listen, when the band gets here, uh, there's something we have to do. I want you to, when the band comes into the control room, I want you to go into the production office there, which was right next door. I mean, literally was like right next door. And, and so go into the production, there was a phone in there and call me in here and tell me something really terrible has happened and I have to leave. So I said, why don't you just say something terrible is happening? He said, no, I need to be convinced. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> so, so I go, the band comes in. So I go into the booth. I call him. The phone rings. It, he's so close to me. I could hear the phone and hear him on it. And uh, so um, I go into another room and I call him. And I could hear his voice, you know, louder through the door than on the phone. And I said, well, now, now, Jack lived on a houseboat in the 79th Street boat basin, which was really cool. He had this great houseboat. So I, I call him and I say, and he says, hello. And I said, Jack, yes. I said, I have terrible news for you. And he goes, and he says really loud, terrible news. Now everybody's looking at him. And I said, your houseboat's on fire and it's sinking in the Hudson River. <laughs> and then he says, my, he says, my houseboat's on fire and it's sinking in the Hudson River. 
and he kind of adds in parentheses, I live on a houseboat. Like to the beach, in the side almost. <laughs> and, and then he adds a little improv. Oh my God, my dog. He didn't have a dog. Oh my God. So, um, he says to the band, I have to leave. The other engineer will handle it. And they could give two shits. They didn't care. So he leaves and, um, I sit down behind the board. Um, they send in, and he grabs somebody in the hall to send in to assist me. And uh, and they go out and they cut. Uh, I won't get fooled again. My first engineering. Wow. Um, that that was uh, so. You know, like uh, two days later, there's a there's a lot of trouble because. You know, like the assistant is not supposed to be uh, recording the who. You know, it's like a big client. <laughs> and they didn't know, you know. And Jack was kind of in trouble, and they made Jack come back. And and, uh, and I went back to the assisting role. But um, it, it didn't go unnoticed uh, upstairs that the who were very happy with me. In fact, every night after the gig, they would take me out. Uh they would uh, they would have me uh, go up to the uh, Hotel Navarro was the name of it on Central Park South. They had the the whole ninth floor of that hotel was theirs. It's a small boutique hotel, and uh, the reason why they would have the whole ninth floor so they didn't bother anybody else. And the two front suites that faced the park were were Keith Moon's. And the other one was Pete Townsend's. They, they faced the park. The other guy said suites, you know, on the floor, but not facing the park. And I would go up and we would meet like at one o'clock in the morning. We would meet in Pete's room. And, and then uh, everybody would, would meet there. Uh, Roger didn't partake in this craziness that, you know, would go on after when we went out, but every night I went up there, um, the way that Keith Moon got into Pete's room was stunning. He would come through the window, <laughs> which meant that, which meant that he opened the window in his suite, climbed out on the ledge, which was really narrow, nine floors up above Central Park South, climb across the, the, the window, open Pete's window, and then climb in. <laughs> and I was the I was the only person that thought that that was like really strange. <laughs> Everybody else was just like, "Hey Keith, <laughs> hey Keith." <laughs> so, so did you? Did you? Um, outside of this initial early phase of the Who. Did you did you ever in your career work again with the Who in any capacity, or was that it? No, no, no except that um, except that Pete used to write me and send me demos, which I thought he used to send me these great letters, uh, and and um, and said that he was going to recommend recommend me to other people, and that we had a great time, and that I had a good future, um, and I saw him, you know, not too many years ago. At, at SIR at a rehearsal, he was walking in with, uh, with uh, some record president and uh, some talent, this girl that he was promoting. 
Um, and, uh, and I ran into the hall and I said, Pete. And he just looked at me for a second. I said, Jack Douglas. And he said, Oh my God. Wow. And he introduced me to his artist friend. Um, and he said, this is Jack Douglas. We made him famous a hundred years ago. <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and, and that was, uh, that was the, the last time, but I did, they, they were playing, um, they were playing while we were doing these records and while we were going out nightly on these adventures, we would go to clubs and they would just bust them up. I mean, clubs <laughs> I didn't know existed. Uh, and it would be insanity, you know, with Keith. So, so, so earlier, um, so, so well, Jack, oh, I, just, I just wanted to, yeah, well, I just wanted to tell you one more. So, uh, they were playing at uh, the tennis, the Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. That's where they were doing this gig, uh, which was the whole reason they were in New York and they were re- kind of recording illegally. Uh, so they they said to me, "We want you to do the sound for this gig uh, uh, at Forest. We want you to do the live sound. Do what you did in the studio, Forest Sound." And so um, I went out there. Luckily, there I had no idea how to do house sound, you know. And and uh, and so um, I, you know, I was saved by their guy. But but I, you know, I just thought the whole thing was hilarious. Why would they want me to go out there? Another cool thing that happened um, during one of the sessions that I was engineering with them. Next door, in, uh, we were in A, and in Studio B uh, um, was either it was Mountain or it was West Bruce and Lang or whatever during that period uh, uh, that Leslie would be in there. And, uh, and Leslie, I ran into Leslie in the hall. And he says, you're doing The Who? I said, yeah. He said, I love The Who. I said, you want to, uh, let me see if you want to jam with them. He said, man, I would love that. So I went in and I asked Pete if if uh, Leslie West could come in and jam with them. And, and he said, absolutely. And we recorded, um, which Leslie, you know, God bless him. Yeah. Um, miss him. Uh, but we recorded baby. Don't do it. Baby. Don't do it. Don't break my heart. Please don't do it. Which I think might be available. Uh, the who at Leslie West, mm. uh, somewhere streaming somewhere. Yeah, I didn't know that Leslie had so ever that, done anything with them. Yeah, yeah, we we did that. Jimmy thanked me forever. He would always, you know, make a point of thanking me for letting him. You know, like the two people that thank me for that kind of stuff is like, you know, Rick Nielsen and Bunny Carlos constantly thank me for inviting them to play with John Lennon. Yeah. Well, we're going to get, well, so, so I want to, I want to segue into that. Cause you know, earlier you, 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 your dogs are getting crazy there. We'll be right back with more with Jack Douglas on this week's podcast. Myrtle beach is the beach, 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. 
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's get back to more with Jack Douglas on this week's Eddie Trunk podcast. So, so Jack, I want to I want to go from something that you you had told me earlier about going to Liverpool, being such a Beatles fan, and that whole experience. I it doesn't escape me the the how incredible it must have been for you not long after that to end up working with John Lennon on Imagine in '71. So how does that come to be? And did Lennon know the story? And did you tell him well, the story of the guy stuck in uh, Liverpool? Let me tell you. <laughs> so now I get, I look on the schedule and I see that I'm uh, working on this Lennon album. I'm like, I can't believe this is amazing. I'm not Lennon working directly with him. I'm the guy who's doing transfers and editing. So I'm in another room you know, pretty kind of far from the action, but on the same floor. And my job is to transfer so that um, he has more tracks to do overdubs on and do some editing. And he has handwritten notes where he wants edits made. So I have to transfer to uh, another multi-track and, uh, and then do some edits on the multi-track. And, uh, so, you know, I'm hearing a lot of the stuff before anybody else which was really cool. I'm like, I can't believe it. This is great. And a few days, so a few days into, into this process, the door opens and he walks into the room that I'm working in. He says to me, is it okay if I hang out in here for a little while, skip for a place to just, you know, like it's quiet. And I said, well, I'm, you know, doing your transfers and editing. It's very quiet in here. I, you know, I have a little speaker on, he says, oh, good, thank you. You're doing a great job, blah, blah, blah. And he sits down on the other side of the console. There's a couch, and he puts his feet up on the glass, and all I can see is his feet crossed and cigarette smoke. And after about um, 10 minutes of you know me just working and trying to be quiet, I say to him, I've been to Liverpool. And his head pops up, and he says to me, uh, friend of Liverpool. He says, where are you from? I said, no, I'm born and raised in New York. He said, well, you know, why would you ever want to go to Liverpool? Everybody in Liverpool wants to come here, including me. He says, I've just moved here. So I said, well, you know, this was in 1965 and like everything was happening musically and I was a musician and I wanted to be, you know, where it was happening and that was Liverpool. And so he said, oh, okay, so how did that work out for you? And I said, well, good and bad. I said, bad, I got supported. But good, I made a lot of noise before I did. And he looked at me and he said, were you one of those two crazy Yanks that was in all the papers? 
And I said, yeah, that was me. He looked at me in a funny way, and he said two things. He said, one, we had just put out a record, should have been just us on the front pages of the Liverpool Echo, the hometown paper. Instead, there are these two crazy Yanks. <laughs> and the second thing he said to me, and the second thing he said was, you still have that Les Paul? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> and I said, uh, well, you know, I said it couldn't be helped. And I love the album, by the way. And no, uh, I don't have that Les Paul anymore. I think I sold it and got a nice Fender Precision bass, early 60s. Um, he said, oh, he said, you know what? He said, I can't believe I'm meeting you. But really? <laughs> said, yeah, it's like, he said, we all laugh at these two guys. Look at them. This is hilarious, you know? <laughs> they, they, they come here and it's with their guitars and it, and then look at they make the front pages. How the fuck did they ever make the front pages of our newspapers? So basically, what you're yeah. saying is John Lennon accused you of stealing okay. stealing the Beatles' thunder. Essentially, you stole their thunder on the day their record came I out. Stole, <laughs> yeah, well, that week, and so it, it was like he's going. It's kind of it's really. He says it's kind of I think special that we, I've met up in all the places. Could have been here. I am, you know, meeting you. Yeah. And so, so what are you doing again? I said, I'm doing your transfers and, <laughs> and your edits. She said, you're an engineer, and I said, yes. He said, well, then you should be engineering with us. You should come down and and you join. And Yoko, I Yoko's going to be excited to meet you because this is like, you know, some in the stars that we met you. Yeah. And so. I went down to the studio and I said, I have to just wrap up this work and I'll be down. And so he went back and then I went down there, I opened the door and the engineers that were working on the project looked at me like, what the hell are you doing in here for the closed session? And, um, you know, everybody's in there, Kelly, House of the Maniac Spectre, all here. And, and, um, and I said, I, I said, I'm with him. Mm. And they said, him. And I pointed to John, and John, and John turns around and goes, "Oh, Jack, Jack, come in, come in, come in." <laughs> and so I go in, and and John says, "Jack's working on this project with us." Wow! And that was it. And um, and that, and I think you know maybe the second day of that working on Imagine with him, he said to me, oh, "So where do you live?" I said, "I live in the village," which I did. I live, I live downtown. He said, we live in the village, too. He said, you want to ride home? I said, sure, that'd be great. Um, okay, I'll, you know, I'll get, I'll hop in the limo with you. So we're going downtown. He says, you know where we could grab something to eat, like where we could get in with, like, not a big to-do? I said, I know a guy. He's got a place. We go in the back door. So I went, we stopped, I checked. We went in the back door. We had a very quiet uh, late-night uh, breakfast, and... Um, and that became a kind of a ritual. And then when he asked me for my phone number and I gave him my phone number and, um, he called me up and he said, Hey, listen, I'm going to go to this party tonight. It's like Abby Hoffman and my whole crew. So I don't know these guys really that well. He said, why don't you just kind of watch my back? So then I started going out with him on these parties. And the thing was, you know, like I had no agenda. We were becoming friends mm-hmm. and, uh, and, you know, he didn't have like a lot of friends in New York. Yoko did. She had a ton of friends in New York. But, uh, and then at some point uh, after Imagine, you know, we worked on Happy Christmas together. And he asked me if I would um, 
start working with Yoko on her solo stuff, engineering it. And so I did. I started uh, doing a series of uh, Yoko albums, that, which John was producing. And we just became friends, you know. It, uh, that's, that's the way it was. When he, uh, when he went to, uh, out to L.A., you know, for that long weekend, and, you know, we were talking and he told me he was going out there. I said, well, I'm producing Alice Cooper, which I was at the time. He said, where are you doing it? I said, I don't know, wherever they tell me. I was my first real production. And, and he said to me, what do you mean where they tell you to do it? You're the producer. You tell them where you want to do it. That was a muscle of love. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, tell them you want to do it in L.A. and you can, we can hang out, you know. And so um, I did, and the Warners was happy to have us near, the, near them. And, you know, we recorded that album at Sunset Sound. And um, though we were staying at the Sunset Marquee, we started that original uh, Hollywood Vampires thing right late at night at the rainbow uh, alice yeah, yeah alice, has, alice be, has told because... me about that drinking up in the annex with lennon and keith moon and of course he's doing a band yeah. about it now but alice has told me and i've actually been there many times where i've gone up and then the names are still engraved in the wall up there yeah yeah i was hanging out for those albums and johnny is a good friend of mine so i was now I was an engineer. You know, I had the total confidence of, of the studios to, to be full engineer. And one of the first biggies I got was um, the New York Dolls, the first album. and Which Rundgren produced, um, right? Yeah, Todd was producing it. And I'd worked with Todd on his, I can't remember the name of his band, out of Philly, as an assistant. So I knew Todd. Naz? Um, yeah, Naz. Right. And so... Um, Todd, I don't know why that was a bad fit, uh, then because Todd was really into pop. The band was into, you know, trash and, uh, and it wasn't a good fit. And so Todd wasn't showing up very often. A lot of times he would call it in. We would have to keep Mercury records out of there when, you know, when it was, uh, me and, and the, and the band. You're talking about with the dolls now, right? Yeah. Exactly. And so um, there was one great moment when uh, they were doing, I think, Personality Crisis. Um, and uh, Davy Joe was in the booth kind of doing a kind of a vocal just to keep the band going. Dave Joe, by the way, is still one of my best friends. And we spend our, our Septembers together out in Montauk. But anyway, so Davy's in the... Davy was a great... David has a great sense of humor. And he's a really smart guy. So David is in booth and he's singing uh, personality crisis. He comes in and Todd wasn't digging it in one bit. So when he came in, not knowing what to say to him, kind of, without being too critical, he said to David, that's going to sound really great when we put a lot of harmony around it. And, and David said to him, harmony? Are you accusing me of having a melody? <laughs> <laughs> Which was really taking the piss, you know. Right. <laughs> were, God forbid the New York Dolls like have melody. <laughs> yeah, so it was not a it was not a good sign, and and um, so you know we got that record done. Uh, Todd came in, we mixed the whole thing in like five days. 
let me ask you about the dolls yeah. since we're on that right now. So, so with the dolls, the, 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 and, and they were, they were a bit before my time. I never saw them live, the, the original band or anything, but the knock on the dolls was that they could not play. Was that your experience in engineering that record? I mean, was it, was it tough yeah, to were, get through the, the actual playing of it and keeping them in line to you know, make a record? Uh, keeping them in line may have been a bit difficult, but you know, it's like they weren't the greatest players. All right. But when they played together, they made a sound that was unique and, and cool because it, you know, it was a garage band, so whatever, you know, it, it, they had a unique thing happening. Still could play enough. They could all play enough. Johnny Thunders, you know, it was dangerous and you never knew where he was going to go, but it was like totally cool. Right. You know, the drummer was solid, you know, things didn't speed up terribly. So, I mean, and David was, again, a very unique town. Lyrically, it was brilliant, a great lyrics. So it was, uh, I thought it was like really cool. And it was really the start of something, you know. And, and for me, I got to produce that, uh, that comeback album that we did in 05, which Rolling Stone, it was like the 15th most important album of the year according to Rolling Stone. So, I mean, it was well-received. It didn't sell them, um, you know, in this country very much, sold overseas. Um, but we got through that project. And at the same time, you know, I had been engineering with Bob Ezrin doing these Alice Cooper records. And, uh, and he said to me one day, uh, somewhere along the billion-dollar babies path, which you uh, worked said, on you that know, you worked on that record, Jack. You did was Billion yeah, Dollar Babies the yeah. first record you worked on for Alice. I I, I helped a little bit on uh, Schools Out, mm-hmm. but Billion Dollar Babies I was really involved as an engineer. So, you know, he's Bob said that Bob and I became fast friends. First of all, he was Canadian, and because I had played so much in Canada. I had uh, landed immigrant status in Canada, so which meant I could go work in Canada. I could do whatever. And we, we used to talk about Toronto. I lived in Toronto for a while. He loved Toronto. He lived there. So he said to me, you know, you, you were producing that New York Dolls album. You should be producing. You, you know, you have the talent. You're an arranger. By this point, I had already scored a TV show as a composer. You know, I, I had a lot... Uh, musically going to be as a musician, composer, an arranger, an engineer. He said, you should be producing. That's the only thing missing from uh, your suitcase right now. So I said, he, he said, why don't you come join me, Nimbus 9, his production company, and come up to Canada. I said, you know, I'm making almost 100000 a year. I'm a kid. Uh, engineering, you want me to leave? This is a staff gig. He said, yeah, leave it. You'll, you'll do better. So I took a chance and went up to Toronto and he had me produce uh, some Canadian bands up in the Nimbus 9 studio as a producer. Uh, and that, that record, the first record I did for him went gold and, and um, uh, I think it went platinum as well. And so, um, you know, he said, Guy, you're, you know, I want you to produce this next uh, Alice Cooper album. Jack Richardson will be with you as well. So I'm like, wow, he, he didn't want to do it because he didn't want, it was the last group album and he wasn't, um, he didn't want to be at the funeral. And so uh, I went and, uh, like I said, went out to LA, Sunset Sound, and, uh, and, and did that record. And that so, was Muscle um, of Love. That was the one you produced. Yeah. 
What were your thoughts um, on Alice as an artist at that time? Oh, I dug him. Really dug him. Really dug him. And I loved, you know, what I loved Bob's production. He was a big influence on me. I mean, Bob's production techniques, you know, they were very formal. And, you know, I, I just learned a lot about how to lay it out, you know, the, the way he did. I was just way looser than Bob. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I, I know Bob and I've interviewed him and I've done the same thing I'm doing with you with him. And when I talk to so many artists who have worked with Bob, that's the thing. He He's also a legend in his field, but his thing is the is the taskmaster. He's the guy who's really going to crack the whip. Did you pick that aspect up from his influence no, that, on you or no? That, no, I didn't. I never used that. That, that wasn't the part of my... Uh, in my paint box at all because I always felt that that the best ideas always come from the band, especially, you know, that's why when you listen to Bob's albums, you know Bob produced them. You know it, you know, and and uh, which is beautiful. But for me, I always thought I want the, every album I do to sound like it's the band's record and not, and not mine. So I always, even if I thought they had crazy ideas and I had good ones, I'd always go to them first and then if let them try it. And then I would make my suggestions about where we should go. And that kept a lot of artists coming back to me. Mm. Uh, you know, plus I have a lot of fun when I'm making a record and I like to spread the fun around and, and, um, you know, but I always think that making records and making music in general is a joyous thing. And, you know, I like to keep the vibes good and, um, and that's the kind of what I like in the control room in the studio and rehearsal and everywhere and the whole thing. So, um, so, so you know, that, that's, so Jack, it that's was, it, I, what was it through Ezrin? Cause, cause on, 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 uh, get your wings, the second Aerosmith record, which you produced, Bob Ezrin has executive producer credit, if I'm not mistaken. So was it Ezrin that brought you to Aerosmith initially? No, it, it was, it, was, it went like this. Aerosmith was the baby band to the dolls with Lieber and Krebs management. Okay. So they wanted Bob to produce the record. All right. So they went to Bob to produce the record. Bob said, Jack Douglas should produce this record. Okay. Now, as far as they were concerned, I had just done them a solid by bringing home that uh, New York Dolls record. Right. And so in, in their book, that worked. For Bob, it was, he's got to get executive uh, producer and a, and a chunk of the royalties. And for me, it was all good. You know, Bob never interfered. He, all he did was uh, listen to some roughs, listen to the final record and tell me. Finally, he said to me, that's a good record. And, uh, you know, he, he didn't interfere at all. And it was just, he was just encouraging all the way. And, you know, I was more than happy to give him whatever credits and, and uh, percentage he got on that. So, and, uh, okay, so just, so just you know, because, again, there's so much I want to talk to you about, and I, I, I don't want to take all your time, but I, I, it's just I got so many things I want to ask you about all this stuff. And so, so when you, to my ears, as a massive Aerosmith fan, Quantum Leap, from first album, which you had nothing to do with in terms of production, the sound of the band, the way Steven sang, 
to get your wings and then an even further leap as we move forward from there. But strictly speaking for the first album you worked with, which is the second album, get your wings. Did you, what, what were your impressions of the band and, and ask, and let me ask you this. There's always been a discussion that on get your wings. And this is something that Ezrin's pretty known for throughout his career that you had to bring in some outside musicians to play a couple solos because Aerosmith just wasn't there yet in terms of their ability to play. Can you talk about all that and what you went through with get your wings with them? Well, first of all, I went to see the band play uh, in a high school up in uh, in uh, around the Boston area, and I fell in love with them. They were raw. They reminded me of the Yardbirds. When I went backstage to talk with them, they were not very friendly. They had had, you know, not a great relationship with producers and labels. And, and when I sat down to talk with them, I came, I, I talked with them as a fellow musician. You know, a guy who had played Yardbirds tunes and Beatles tunes and Stones tunes and, you know, covered about everything that they had. And, and um, you know, was I was a musician. And so immediately we, we went from, you know, daggers to smiles. And, um, you know, and they had to make the final choice. And they and they did. And they said they were happy to do it. We, we went into a pre-production period. They had a lot of material. At that point, it wasn't like a long, long pre-production period. And we got, you know, we got to be friends during the pre-production period. We were hanging out all the time. And I, you know, I knew what they wanted to do on some of the tracks, that they weren't quite there yet. And so um, I did call in. You know, I consulted with the band, of course, Joe and Brad, not so much. Joe, you know, was very unhappy about it. And Stephen was happy about it because, you know, these solos were going to take the band to the next level. Once they learn those solos, then they can go play them live. But, you know, I think on two tunes, uh, it was Dick Wagner, Steve Hunter, the combination that, you know, Bob had been using for years. Right. And so those guys, you know, I I called them in and, you know, they, they did a great job and they kept their mouth shut. And, you know, some years ago that, uh, that I would have kept my mouth shut. I think Joe let the cat out of the bag some years ago. It was not a secret that we had a little help. Well, do, do, um, do, do you remember but, the tracks? One of them was Train Kept a Rolling, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and yeah. Do you remember the, the other? I remember. That's the one you remember. Okay. And there's also applause in that that's not actually from an Aerosmith show, right? No. No, it's from uh, it's from um, the uh, concert for Bangladesh, which <laughs> I also worked on with George. <laughs> So, so, thank you, John, recommended that, that me to George. But anyway, um, once, they, once the guys heard that stuff on the record, it was like it, it kind of healed itself. And, and the other thing was that Stephen, you know, he had this other voice. Stephen's voice, dream on. You know, he had that voice on the first record. But you would hear him, like, you would hear his real voice, and it was like, just killer. You know, he had this great kind of R&B gravelly, cool, high, full range voice. And so, um, you know, I wanted to use that voice uh, on everything and, and no, no more of this voice, which, you know, he was using in his bands in the sixties cause it sounded, I don't know, like some something familiar to him and he had it. 
So, um, yeah, so that changed it. I get a lot of letters from fans saying, what did you do to Steven's voice? <laughs> you fucked it up. <laughs> I'm like, well, if I did, you know, so no. what? But, um, no, it's, it was the biggest, for, for me, having had the first record and then going to the second record, it was the biggest, most immediate, noticeable change was not only the production and the quality of the production, but the way Stephen sang was, was uh, I thought, way better and, and completely different. Uh, before we end here, we're going to go through uh, just a quick thing or two on some bands I want to hit you with, Jack, uh, throughout your discography. Okay. But uh, obviously... Uh, for me and my audience, a lot of interest in Aerosmith and getting some stuff from you on the various records you made. So we talked a little bit about the first record, which was Get Your Wings. And then, of course, the monster record comes in Toys in the Attic. As you made the third Aerosmith record, the second that you worked on, did you have any idea as you began making Toys that it was going to become this landmark record? No, no none whatsoever. But the band after Get Your Wings... The band went on the road and covered those tunes and played those solos and played both the first and second, became real road dogs. I mean, they just did, I don't know, months and months of, of touring and playing every night. And uh, and then came, then Columbia called for the next record because they thought maybe we have something here. And so I think maybe Dream On had come out and started to move as well. Mm -hmm. And so they called for the second, for the third record and, uh, and so I went up to Boston and we started pre-production. They didn't really have a lot of whole songs, but they had a lot of really great ideas. And this was the first time that we now uh, settled into, you know, a work schedule, a pre-production schedule with, with no time limits on it. In other words, we could work for months on developing the material. And we also had a, a, a little studio we could go into and cut demos if we wanted to. I think that's where Helter Skelter came from. Uh, that, uh, you know, that's been bootlegged a few times. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's where it came from. And so they started, you know, coming up with these tunes and we started to develop them. And everybody, everybody was in on it. You know, it was... Uh, it was just a, you know, a great, great collaborative effort. And, you know, nobody got high while we were working. We all, uh, whatever we were going to do, we did after work and partied and had a good time. And, and, but still we're responsible enough to, to, uh, for example, every morning, Joey Kramer and I would hit the gym and then go together to, to rehearsal. So we, it, it became a real habit. Uh, how we would do this, and it was very organized. Did, we were having a great time. Did I read this correctly in an interview you did, or the band did? I'm not sure which. That "Walk This Way," which of course is the enormous song to this day, and is on "Toys in the Attic," that it almost didn't make the record. Is that true? Absolutely true, because it was a great track. You know, we always did. We came into the studio. Stephen never had lyrics at that point. He was still forming the lyrics and we always came into the studio uh and while we were tr while we were tracking or he would listen he would listen to the tracks on his cassette machine and that's when the lyrics would come <laughs> and so everything was done but we had this great track it just you know just grooved but to come up with um a melody line and lyrics for it was you know really tough and we were 
we were wondering, do we make it an instrumental? We cut it down. Do we just save it for later? What do we do? And, and so we had this, we had this thing we used to do when sometimes we were looking for lyrics, we would, um, you know, we were in Times Square, this is the you know, mid seventies and, and it was pretty, pretty nasty out on eighth Avenue. So at night we could take a walk up eighth Avenue and there'd be a lot of cool, uh, a lot of cool lyric stuff happening in the streets. Steven would, would, you know, lift stuff here and there and, you know, we would just take a walk around the neighborhood and, um, and there would be some pretty cool stuff going on that was inspiring. And so this one Sunday afternoon that we're listening to this track, Walk This Way, uh, and getting nowhere with it, we decided to make the, take a walk. And it was a Sunday afternoon and like, there was just nobody out there. So we decided to go to one of these second run movie theaters on 42nd street. And young Frankenstein was playing, and um, and when the hunchback says to the, the you know the people that show up at the castle, when he says to them, uh, "Walk this way," and they all walk <laughs> like him, like a hunchback, yeah, like that killed us. You know, we're sitting in the audience and we're all laughing our asses off. <laughs> we just thought it was the funniest thing ever. We thought the movie was hilarious, but the you know the, that particular scene killed us. And, you know, it was so stupid and slapstick, and that was us anyway, you know. And so when we got back to the studio, I put up the track, and I started walking around like the hunchback in time to the track, going, walk this way, walk this way. And they all started following me walking like the hunchback. And Steven said, I get it. And he left, and he came back with those lyrics wow. like in 45 minutes and, and did it. Uh, the rest is history. Yeah. I, I don't mean to, yeah. to I don't mean to to gloss over these records because I could do hours on every record. But in the interest of time, just to, I, I got to ask you about you know going forward. Then the next record, Rocks, which to me and a lot of hardcore Aerosmith fans is our favorite record they ever made. Uh, the overall fourth record for the band and the third you did with them. What were your recollections about Rocks and how that came together? The thing about rocks was now we had a big warehouse that we could rehearse in, which sounded pretty nasty because it was so big, but it was ours and had a big garage outside where they, you know, it was an indoor garage where you could pull a truck in and they, now they had a merchandise section, you know, where they stored the merch, they stored their lights. It was like a, it was a pretty big operation. It was in Waltham, Massachusetts. So we, again, they came in with very, very little material, but lots of ideas, you know, not really any complete songs because they'd just been on the road forever. And, and Columbia says, we don't want another one to follow up, you know, this massive, gigantic album you just did. Give us another one, you know, which was kind of a pain in the neck because it's not like they gave the time to the band to really write. So we were, again, allowed to take a long, long time pre-production period and uh i moved into the into a, a old a big old hotel in Kapu plaza in boston great hotel and every morning tom hamilton would pick me up we would read the new york uh, i would read the new york times to him on the way to waltham because sometimes ideas would come out of the new york times and you know we would examine everything for for ideas Anyway, we we had a long, long development period on those songs, and 
every day I would get in there a little earlier, me and Tom, and I would, because it was so difficult to, um, to work because it was, the room was so live. I started hanging rugs, putting curtains up, putting couches in different places to get the sound of the room uh, in control. And the thing is, it started to sound really good in there. And now you're creating in this environment. You're creating the songs in this environment where the guitar sounds right for the song because it's in this environment. And the drums sound right because it's in this environment. The bass, everything sounds right because it's in the environment. Even the key of the song it becomes important. So I realized I, I should not leave this environment. This is where I should record it, exactly where the guys are set up. I should bring a remote truck, park it into this in this big garage, and mic mic the room. So Jamesina, who had been working with me uh, on on those records, Jay comes up and uh, we park the record plant remote truck in the garage, and we capture the sound of that record in the environment. It's not a studio. It's the environment that the songs were written in. And to me, when people ask me, like, why is it one of my favorite records? It's because it's the truest record that, you know, I mean, you know, there are other records that are true, but this one is truest because it was created and recorded in the same environment where we decided that these notes are right because it sounds right in this room. And, it might not have sounded right in a in a studio, and so you know I when and I and I really liked you know and I was of course recorded twenty four track analog on a, on a great API board and um and I remember when we were presented some awards out in Los Angeles for for the record uh, platinum albums or something but Joe and Stephen and myself were there and Columbia was presenting us with all this stuff for the record and. Richard Perry came up to me, who was like, you know, Richard Perry for me was like one of my production heroes. Like the sounds, the sounds of his records always knocked me out. I mean, I studied, you know, Nielsen records that he did. Just, I loved his sound. And Richard Perry came up to me and he said, can I ask you something? I said, what? He goes, how did you get that sound? The sound of this record is like crazy. It's like aggressive but you can hear everything and i was like wow richard perry is asking i've arrived <laughs> <laughs> i've arrived well jack jack you know what's so, interesting what's interesting though is that rocks to most people it sounds like you as well myself included favorite all-time aerosmith record top to bottom home tonight the final track as good as the first track i mean just a brilliant brilliant record but it didn't have nearly the same commercial success of uh, of toys in the attic. I'm looking at some stats now where it it roughly sold about half the amount of toys. Was there any uh, as as much as anyone would sign to sell four million five million records when you didn't have the walk this way or the sweet emotion all over the radio from rocks? Was there any concern or any pushback from the label or band or anything no, at that time? No, there was none. We. We loved that record. Every member of that band said that, you know, that record is us more than any other record that was that we've ever done. I think Toys in the Attic is, you know, by the way, the piano player on the on the, like Big Ten Inch uh, was the piano player from my band, the Liverpool set. Came down from came down from Toronto and and played on it. 
Oh, wow. It was really good. He joined the, he joined the band for a while, Scott Cushney. He was blind. Um, and uh, he was in the band for he was in he went out on the road with them to cover some of that the toys in the attic tour. But anyway, no, we had no concerns. We didn't care that you know the closest we got was Last Child, maybe somewhere in the twenties or thirties. Back in the saddle there, a but, little. Yeah, back in the saddle. But you know what? We did we didn't care one iota for us. That that was just pure Aerosmith. Now that when, was it. That was what. That's where it was supposed to be. When you get to draw the line, the that's when the the hugeness, the success, the excess, the drugs. There are all kinds of stories, including in the band's own book, about the mayhem of making draw the line. And when you think about it as a follow up to Rocks, there's a lot of people that feel that it it you know it wasn't the record it should have been. Was that a byproduct of the fact that the band was so off the rails at that time? Well, you know. I think, I think the band went out on the road again. Road, 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 nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. They get a break finally. And, and it's, you know, I mean, you know, they're, they're fucking up a little bit on the, on the road. I mean, they're, they're doing some drugs on the road. But when they finally get off the road, instead of being able to relax for five, six months, which they really needed, and even get away from each other, you know, just relax, have a life. Columbia calls for another one. And so, you know, it was, you couldn't keep up that pace. It was impossible. And especially with the drugs. And so, uh, you know, we moved in, into a, into this giant place and it, and we built a studio inside it. We had control room. We used the rest of the place, different rooms. There was a chapel, put the drums in, you know, and, and it was mayhem to the point where, you know, you see my name on, on as a writer on some of the songs. Well, there's one of my, so, you know, it's interesting because all the mayhem that went on and for how that record might be viewed as uneven or I've even, he even heard some of the guys in the band say they didn't really feel it was even completed right. But I'll say this, and I think you do have a co-write on this. One of my all-time favorite Aerosmith songs is on that record, which I actually, when I saw them in Vegas a couple of years ago, they they did, and that's Kings and Queens. That and the title yeah. track, there's some amazing songs on that record. Yeah, there's a couple of great songs. I, you know, I wrote uh, Kings and Queens on the piano, and I was really happy that the band you know took to it. You know, Stephen wrote great lyrics and a great melody line for it. And yeah, that song and draw the line title Those tracks are great, amazing. Yeah. You know, draw the line. Yeah, it's a great live song. I you know it just that's so Joe Perry. It really is. It's just you know killer Joe Perry stuff. So so um, again, I want to I want to ask you about so some other bands here, but I just so that's the only reason why I'm moving forward quickly here because I could talk to you forever about every one of these records, but we don't have forever. But I want but what what's interesting to me about the Aerosmith story at this point is that Joe leaves, Brad leaves, and you end up and I find this really fascinating. You end up producing the Aerosmith record without Joe, Rock in a Hard Place, which with Jimmy Crespo, which by the way, I think is a fantastic record. Bitches Brew, Lightning Strikes. I think there's amazing stuff on that record. And I also equally love Let the Music Do the Talk in the first Joe Perry project record, which I listened to today like it still just came out. And I think that's an amazing record. And you did both of those records, did you not? Yeah, I did, yeah. 
How did yeah. that even work? You would think that with Joe leaving, there would be kind of like a battle line drawn, but somehow you were on either side of the line, like you were in both camps. Yeah, but the thing was, I was friends with everybody in the band, whether they left, you know, or or they didn't, and no, you know, nobody was mad at me for being friends, you know, with anybody. That's you know, again, that's the kind of relationship I had with everybody in the band. So. When I was doing uh, Joe's album, he wasn't talking shit about Steven and the band at all. All he was interested in was making a good record, which we did. And the same thing when when uh, working on Rock in a Hard Place. They weren't talking shit about Joe and Brad at all. You know, they were just like, all right, we're doing this record. And, of course, we had Rick Dufay to, you know, for a little extra fun. So, you know, it, it, it was fine. I know that you you also love let the music do the talking as I do. What what are your thoughts on Rock in a Hard Place and Crespo having been in the band and doing a record with him? I you know I really Jimmy was a great player. I mean like a super accomplished player, but you know he was uh, he may have been a little afraid of of Stephen. You know, like you know Stephen could be scary, I guess, and I think. I think Steven really wanted the collaboration with Jimmy, but he wanted Jimmy to be Joe. It, it, you know, it couldn't be. That, right. that couldn't be. It, you know, he just... Um, and so that was hard for Jimmy. It was really hard. It wasn't hard for Rick at all. Uh, Rick and, and Steven hit it off, you know, unbelievably. And in fact, it was Rick who uh, talked Joe into coming back into the band at the at the... Uh, at the, when they were, got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, Rick was like, I don't belong in this band. Joe belongs in this band. This is crazy. And and so when Joe was making a speech, Rick and I were sitting out there at a table, and Joe said, and I'd like to thank Rick Dufay for committing professional suicide. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Jack, you did, you've done some other Aerosmith records. You did... I think Live Bootleg is a tremendously underrated live record. I love that record as well. Slash, that Slash's favorite. Oh, he and I... tell me that Guns N' Roses would play that in the dressing room before they went on. Well, yeah, he and I talk about it all the time because we're, we're friends. And I'll, t I'll tell you, um, I what I love so much about it is so many of those 70s live records we found out were studio creations. To me, that yeah. feels like you are in that arena, warts and all, M80s going off overhead. It's one of the it's one of those records from that era that absolutely feels like the band you're really there with the band, and that's truly what they sounded like. So, tell me, was were there touch ups, or was that really as raw as it sounds? No, that that's it. We just, you know, I went out on the road with the band for three months recording shows doing live broadcasts to these radio stations and, and just collecting as much material as I could. Plus they had some, you know, weird stuff that like popcorn and, you know, just like, that was recorded in a club in Boston. But the whole idea was we were going to make a record. That was the, the antithesis of what was coming out and being called live. Right. We wanted a real, a real live record. Yeah. Watch mistakes. You know, we didn't yeah. fix anything. That's, you know, we just would go through, uh, do we have a better version of this song? Oh, here's it. Yeah, this one's good. That, this one really sounds like the band line. Boom, that's the take we used. And that's and that's how we did that record. But um, 
but the thing was after I after you know Jay and I mixed the record, I sent it over to to Columbia, and they called me up and they said, "What you know? What is this? This isn't a this isn't a live album. It doesn't sound like Frampton. It doesn't sound like Kiss. Come on, what is it?" I said, "Well, no, this is a real live album. This is what Aerosmith sounds like if you go see them. You know, no, this is unacceptable." So I said, "I'll tell you what. Um, I'll book another week and I'll I'll I'll, I'll remix it." So I said, okay, good, do that. So I booked another week, and none of us went into the studio. We just booked a week, you know. <laughs> and they, and then I sent the same tape back to them, and they accepted it. And that was it. <laughs> there was no way we were going to change that record. None. Thank God you didn't. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. One last Aerosmith thing, then I got to hit you with a few other bands, and I got to let you go. So, so um. The last album Aerosmith made is now almost 10 years old, Music from Another Dimension. And, the, you know, there, there are songs on that record I like a lot. Some feel it was a little too long. Some feel there were too many ballads. But there are a lot of people that wonder if a band as successful and as far into their career, 50 years into their career like Aerosmith, could ever make an album like A Rocks or A Toys in the Attic again. And do, so, so the question is, do you think when a band has the success and the history and the longevity, it, it, would it, would it, is it fair to say it's impossible to put them back in their 23-year-old skin and make a record that sounds like that again? And do you think Music from Another Dimension will be the final Aerosmith record? I mean, if you ask Joe Perry, he'd tell you, well, maybe not, you know. But, um, you know, it, it doesn't make sense financially to make albums anymore. That That's the sad that you know no no label they're not even on a label you know they're not on their, their contract with columbia is over so it's almost like you know why why do it yeah i would love to you know but i don't want to take and i think you know we overthought some of that record when we finished tracking in boston i thought we were really close you know there were less songs and and they sounded raw and, and I thought in pocket, but, uh, you know, we kept polishing and I think maybe, you know, too much. It was recorded on, on tape, but it ended up in Pro Tools. And I, I think they could, it would, I think, you know, like a killer EP is very possible. Absolutely. All right. So you know, we're going to have to, I think I have to move on. We'll have to come back to this because we haven't even touched Budokan. We got well. We I want to talk to you about Budokan and Stars and uh, you know so many other things. Bloister Cult you worked and on John. and Slash and and obviously Double Fantasy and and you even did a Montrose yeah. record that I love a lot. So there's there's a lot of stuff that we uh, obviously didn't have time to get to here. But you know I don't want to keep you too long, and I appreciate your time. I really do. Is there anything you want to mention or promote that you're working on now that we didn't get to? Uh, I have a label, L.A. Confidential. I've signed artists, but uh, luckily I have a. Uh, luckily, there was a, a clause in it that uh, said if there was a God uh, cause disaster, you know, we can put this on hold. So, uh, so uh, you know, I'm just going to be getting back to my artists, uh, Kelly Klo, especially from Atlanta, who was an amazing singer. She's just a coolest and. Um, I'm heading out June 2nd to Los Angeles to the studio that my partner and I have built. It's beautiful. I could score um, films in it. I, I have a film going that I scored during this pandemic. 
that's going to the Cannes Film Festival in July. And in June, on June 12th, I will be with Cheap Trick at the Foxwoods uh, Theater. We're doing a show there, and, uh, and that should be very cool. Yeah, I tell you that new Cheap Trick record is fantastic. I just did some stuff with those guys, and remarkable band that I know you have a lot of history with as well. Ah, so I'm sure. Great. Did uh, you hear Rebel Rebel? Yes. Yeah, that was a blast. We did that last year. Yeah, just just last incredible. Year. And talk about bands that are still so good later in their career. I mean, live and yeah. on, on record, just just really a, a a remarkable, very very special band. And I know you did Standing on the Edge with them as well. And we just, uh, yeah. I just did a list on this radio show of favorite all-time Aerosmith songs, and tonight it's you from that record came up on almost every list, including my own. So there's just so much amazing oh, cool. material with them as well. But yeah, I mean Zebra, cool. we didn't even touch on Zebra. You did that first album, which was just a, an incredible record as well. So we'll that we'll have to do another round at some point. I really appreciate your time. Okay, though. definitely. Take Bye care for now. Bye bye. Well, thanks to Jack Douglas. Tremendous response to that interview. And hopefully we'll do another round with him and get more in-depth with a bunch of different artists that he worked with and albums that he worked on. We just simply ran out of time. Uh, but it was great talking with him and visiting with him. And that was already a very expansive interview, as you just heard. Uh, but we will definitely need to and do more with him somewhere in the near future. I thank Jack for telling his story and being so generous with his time. Come see me if you are in Northern California this Sunday, hosting Skid Row Warrant Winger Autograph, Corning, California, Rolling Hills Casino. And be sure to follow on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook, and eddytrunk.com. Thanks to Joel Pollack for producing the Eddie Trunk podcast. Be sure to listen to me on Sirius XM on the Volume Channel every day. And I will catch you guys again next Thursday for another all-new episode of the podcast. Have a good week. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.